Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for your beautiful spirit and for the beautiful name of Jesus who is high above the prophets and the angels and Moses and the high priests and everything in the old covenant. And we just thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior. Father, I pray for every woman here today that you will just meet her right where she is and that you, you will speak to her heart with your words of truth. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today in this lesson titled, So Great a Salvation, is Hebrews chapter 2. I will begin by reading the first four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now this is the first of five exhortations or warnings in the book of Hebrews. It is comparatively mild. If you heard Tana's introduction the first week, you may remember that the warnings get more severe throughout the letter. They crescendo, she said. You heard her talk about the letters she wrote to her daughters um, as they left for college. Letters bathed in love, confidently assuring them, yet realistically addressing the perils that she knew they would face. And so this is the situation with this first warning. The author, full of love for these Hebrew Christians, urges his hearers to faithfulness and perseverance in the truth as they face persecutions and temptations to revert back to the relative safety of the law and all of its rules and regulations. Since the chapter begins with, therefore, we know that refers back to what we have just heard in chapter 1. Jesus is higher, greater, and better than the prophets, better than the angels. Last year in Deuteronomy, we saw how angels were involved in the spectacular giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and they were highly esteemed by the Jewish people. Now, however, the author uses angels in a comparison in this first exhortation. Since Jesus is so far above them, we should pay much closer attention to the communication that we have received about Jesus, so that we do not let the water run out as in a leaky vessel so that these things do not slip completely out of our memories so that we do not neglect them and disregard them let them flow by and flow away as a river glide away and lose them completely from our minds we must pay attention our minds do not without much care retain what is poured into them so if we make light of this message and do not care for it do not regard its worth or its necessity it is just as astonishing as if a condemned prisoner were to reject a pardon. These truths from Jesus and his disciples are important. We need to take hold of them and treasure them as our own. To relegate them to the background of life is to invite downfall. One commentator said, indifference spells disaster. We learn that the author and his audience, while they never heard Jesus himself, heard of this salvation from those who heard it from Jesus, and then they witnessed signs and wonders that accompanied the message. So, what would these Jewish people have heard? The gospel. 
If you are new to this, then we want you to understand what we're talking about. And if you are like me and have known this for many years, well, we still need to hear this. I need to hear the gospel every day. So in a nutshell, here's what we mean by the gospel. In the beginning, God created everything good, beautiful, and perfect, putting man in charge of ruling this earthly world. Man rebelled, disobeyed God, bringing sin, corruption, and death. In, order, in other religions, people are trying to earn the favor of their God, trying to reach up to him or to it. But in Christianity, God came down to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who became one of us in our humanity, took upon himself all the punishment that we deserve for our sins, bore the wrath of God by dying a cruel death on a Roman cross. And in exchange, because of his sinless, perfect life that he lived right here on earth, Jesus gives to all those who are trusting in him all of his righteousness, all of his goodness. This is all by the grace of God. There is nothing we can do to earn it. It's a free gift from God. Wow. That is why we call it the gospel. It's the good news. That is what these Jewish Christians would have heard. Jesus has now clearly revealed to everyone here on earth who God is, what he is like, and how we can be restored to a relationship to him through Jesus. So for this audience, people who had been raised in Judaism, no more bloody animal sacrifices. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He entered the throne room of God by his death with his own blood. No more going through a priest repeatedly as a mediator to God. Jesus broke open the way to God by his once for all sacrifice for all who belong to him to come boldly through him to God the Father. No more ceremonial rules for foods and drinking vessels and dead bodies and ritual washings and cleansings. It's all done. They would have been set free. So this is a warning, an exhortation. Don't go back. It's as though the writer is saying to these Hebrews, I, I don't really think you will because you've been set free and you know what that bondage under the law was like. So I'm confident that you will stay the course but I just have to say this anyway, just to be sure you have really got it. There is a connection between these first four verses back to chapter one. God has spoken through his son. The author is saying, don't drift away. If the law implemented by angels brought severe punishments for just a single disobedience, just think how much worse it will be if you reject the message from God's own son. There is no escape. Jesus spoke it, his eyewitnesses told it to all of you, and God even confirmed it by signs and miracles. You cannot refuse this. You really do not want to go back to the old ways. This is God's final word. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, and we know where he is right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. So disobedience to the law brought earthly punishments, but disobedience to this salvation through Jesus affects your eternal destiny, eternal judgment from which there is no way out, no escape. The signs and wonders God performed before your eyes demonstrate that God himself validated the truth of this good news. This warning is to help keep you on the straight and narrow path, keep you from danger so that you will continue in hope. 
So these listeners are in peril of slipping away from the Christian faith as an untethered boat slips away from the dock, almost without realizing it. The danger is grave. They had been Jews. Now they believed the gospel. Woe to them if they allowed themselves to slip away from Christ. The cross was a stumbling block to the Jews who had expected a conquering king here on earth. But after Jesus made purification for sins, he was the object of worship by the angels. Jesus is eternally greater than the angels. They were created by him, they worship him, and they minister to him. Therefore, higher regard should be given to his gospel. This was not from Moses or the prophets, but from the Son of God, who is greater than all of them. Now let's take a look at the second paragraph, which is verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is directly quoted from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Once again, the author returns to the subject of the superiority of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, over the angels as the author had been discussing back in chapter 1. Initially, God put all the earth under, under the dominion of Adam. So man, not angels, was the ruler over creation. And this was the original good plan. But Adam sinned and brought condemnation upon the people, the creatures, even on the earth itself. That's why verse 8 tells us that we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. But Jesus, for a short while during his life here on earth, he was for a little while made lower than the angels. But now Jesus has triumphed over death by his suffering and is crowned with glory and honor. We who belong to Jesus share in that victory. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? So, dear Hebrew friends, the author is saying, do not abandon the one who triumphed over death and is the rightful ruler over the world. Humans are the crowning glory of God's creation and will at last, under King Jesus, rule the world. Jesus died in place of human beings, thus securing their triumph over sin so that they can rule with him. Schreiner says that the rule of sin over humanity has been dethroned through the death of Jesus. So now that we've taken care of the first exhortation and we have Jesus securely ruling at God's right hand, higher than the angels, we have to first discuss a few terms so that we all understand what they mean and then we can move on to my most favorite part of this chapter, our adoption as children of God. So the terms. Our first word is in verse 11. Sanctifies and sanctifies. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. To sanctify means to make holy, to set apart. The Moody Handbook describes our initial or positional sanctification and then later progressive sanctification. In order to get to these words, though, we have to introduce another term, justification. Both justification and sanctification express Jesus' saving work for sinners. First, justification, the red lines on my chart. This is an act of God, a legal declaration. When I confess faith in Christ, so that's the red star down at the bottom, then because of Jesus' perfect obedience to God and his sacrifice for my sins, bearing the wrath of God which I deserved, God declares me righteous in his sight, not because of anything I have done, only because of Jesus. I am justified before God, who sees me through the righteousness of Christ. Now, at this point, I jump up to the top of the red line. I am sanctified. It is the same root word as holy, as the word saint. When the Apostle Paul writes letters to people, he often calls them saints even when they are behaving badly, because they have the righteousness of Christ. Sanctification is a reality, accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the sanctification that it's talking about in Hebrews 2.11, our initial positional sanctification. So here's this chart. When I confess my trust in Jesus, in his sacrifice for me, I am justified and sanctified. This never changes, never goes away, all the way until I die and go to heaven. That's where I am before God. However, of course there has to be a but, right? Now, you and I know that even though we belong to Jesus, we still sin. So there's another kind of sanctification referenced elsewhere in the scriptures. Often Paul says things like we have to work, on our, work out our holiness and things like that. So this is our progressive sanctification. This is my black zigzag line. This is where, because we have trusted in Jesus and we love him, we want to please him and demonstrate that through the deeds in our lives. If our sanctification were complete, there would be no need to pursue holiness. But we know as believers that we are not all that we should be or that we ultimately will be. We are truly sanctified and set apart through Jesus, yet we await the fullness of it. So, the black lines. My sins are gone, I am forgiven, and I'm set free to love and serve the Lord, which I do in a not-so-perfect way every day as I am becoming more and more like Jesus. God is transforming me and sanctifying me. I cannot tell much from one day to the next. But I can look back five years ago and say, yes, I can see that God is making me more like Jesus. So we are initially sanctified and we continue to be progressively sanctified during our life here on earth. Now there's one more word before we get to our adoption as God's children. It's in verse 17. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There it is, propitiation. 
which the New International Version translates as atonement. The Old Testament word for that means to cover. So God provides a covering for our sin in Jesus. It means a wrath-bearing atonement, an appeasement, or to make holy by purifying from sin. So Jesus bore all of God's wrath that we deserve for our sins. He was our propitiation, our wrath-bearer. Robert Peterson said it this way, God sends the thunderbolt of his law to us. Jesus steps into our place, and the thunderbolt strikes him instead. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, hallelujah, amen. And now, as promised, let's talk about our adoption as children of God. If you ever receive an email from me, it will be signed, Kathy L. Gurley, Child of the Most High God. This is what I want to talk about now. Our adoption into God's family as his precious children. 1 John 3, 1 tells us how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That is why we sang this children's song this morning. And by the way, thank you, Laura. I didn't say thank you. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. It's my intent that the tune and lyrics of that song would permeate your mind and that you would find yourself singing it all day today. I even put a link to YouTube on your notes so that you could listen to it again or play it again for your children. And I do believe that our awesome audio gals in the back, Chastity and Candice, have recorded it with the lecture today as well. So let me read the final section of our passage for today, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, and then highlight some of the words from this text that relate to our adoption into God's family. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through sacrifice, through suffering, sorry. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, adoption means the giving to any person the name, place, and privileges of a son who is not a son. In the Bible, Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses. Mordecai adopted Esther. God himself adopted Israel as his firstborn son. Many of you have undoubtedly been part of adoption in some way in your immediate or extended family. In a spiritual sense, adoption is an act of God's grace by which he brings redeemed men and women into his family and makes them partakers of all the blessings which he has provided for them. 
Let's go back and look at the words in this passage that relate to our adoption by God through Jesus into his family. Now, the generic word brothers, you just need to know that really includes both men and women, brothers and sisters. Verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory. Verse 11, he, that's Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Verse 13, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood. Verse 16, it is not angels he helps, he helps the offspring of Abraham. And verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In the book of Ephesians, we read that this adoption is part of God's good eternal plan. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to, here it is, be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. This has been God's purpose all along, to create a family of beloved children through his son, Jesus, brothers with Christ, chosen by God even before the foundation of the world. And this will bring praise to God for his glorious grace, which he has poured out upon us through Jesus. God himself chose us to be his children even before the world was made. Then Jesus came to earth as a man, sharing in our humanity, so that he would experience all that we humans do, and so that we may be his adopted brothers and sisters. In Romans 8.29, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation because it says it how best. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. And then God gives us his Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Adoption, to make our adoption real to us, to make us aware of who we truly are, children of God. Now, we spent part of the past two summers in West Africa. The people there have a sweet custom of addressing people using family-type names. <laughs> so I am usually called Auntie Kathy, sometimes Sister Kathy, occasionally Grandma Kathy. My husband is almost always Uncle Dick or Papa Dick, sometimes just Daddy. One of our students emailed me the other day, and he simply called me Mom. This is truly delightful because it validates that all of us who are part of God's family are truly related. We are brothers and sisters with Jesus, our elder brother. We are forever the children of God, members of God's family. God created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. That's in the first chapter of Genesis. Then in the fifth chapter, we read that Adam had children in his image and likeness. And we are intended to be children of God made in his image and likeness. Think of our memory verse. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Another version reads, Jesus is the exact representation of his being. 
Because of Adam's disobedience, the image and likeness was marred. But God is now in the business of restoring man to the image and likeness of his son, Jesus. Let me read Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. The Moody Handbook says that adoption means placing as a son. It describes the rights and privileges of a son. This concept of adoption in the New Testament is taken from a Roman legal ceremony where the adopted son is given all the rights of a natural-born son. First, the adopted person lost all rights in their old family but gained all rights as a fully legitimate son in the new family. Second, the adopted person becomes an heir to his father's estate. Then the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. All debts legally canceled, wiped out as if they never even existed. The records were gone. This reminds me of God blotting out our sins. Isaiah 43:25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. The record is completely erased. And then finally, legally, the adopted person literally and completely is the son of his new father. Paul uses this Roman background and Greek language in some of his letters in the New Testament to describe a believer's new freedom in Christ. He's released from slavery to sin into freedom. He's released from bondage under the law to a new status as a son. And he's in a new relationship where he may call God Abba, Father. The adoption takes place in eternity past when God chose us before the creation of the world, but it is realized in the present when each one of us trusts in Jesus. And that's from Ephesians 1.5, which we read a little while ago. So many of you, even if you're new to Bible study, have perhaps heard the story of the prodigal son. It's pretty common. It's in Luke chapter 15. So this son demands his inheritance from his father, squanders it recklessly, and tries to return home to become just like one of his father's servants. But his father refuses to allow him to be humiliated and instead makes a huge celebration, treating the returning son as royalty. This is exactly the biblical picture of God's attitude towards each of us who come to faith in Christ and become one of his adopted children. Meanwhile, the elder brother, who has worked enslaved, that's his own words, for his father for many years, he refuses even to go into the celebration. So really, he's the one who's really in slavery. He's the one who's in bondage. He refuses to become a child of the king, even though he could be. And his father would welcome him with open arms. The son who had wasted his inheritance told his father he had sinned and was no longer worthy to be called his son. But Sinclair Ferguson says he was calculating on the basis of his sin rather than on the basis of the character of his father. Instead, he experienced lavish love. 
Ferguson says the lessons that this story teaches us as Christians are often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact that, despite assumptions to the contrary, the reality for God's love is often the last thing in the world to dawn on us. We fix our eyes on ourselves, and it seems impossible that God could love us. But John calls us to look up. Behold, what a manner, what kind, what love that belongs like to another world altogether. We forget to look up at God's love and his character. Instead, we look at our faults, and we don't stop to consider what a wonder it is for God to look upon us and pardon us. Now, you've heard, smile, God loves you. But that's very superficial, and that cannot give us a deep, abiding sense of God's love through many afflictions. We need to know deep in our hearts that we've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world and that we are his precious children. I've taken many of these insights about adoption into God's family from Sinclair Ferguson's little book titled Children of the Living God, and I put that on your notes. He says that Roman adoption and spiritual adoption as God's children have three elements. Old family ties are broken, the new family is joined, and a new commitment is made on the part of that, family, that new family. We are now heirs. So first, our old family ties are broken. We are no longer bound by guilt. We're no longer in slavery to sin. Just as Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to prove that he was really the son of God, so Satan will try to tempt us in a sim similar way. How can we really be children of God with all our sins, with our past? But we are not children by anything we do or anything we have done. It's all by the grace of God. We are freely adopted by him. He chose us. It doesn't depend on us. Listen to the, what the word of God tells us in Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And Ephesians 5.1 tells us to be imitators of God as his beloved children. All our debts and obligations were put to the account of God's son. He took everything we deserved. His death canceled every sin, every debt, every guilty thought, word, and deed. Our sins can never be brought back up again. Through the death of Christ at an eternal cost to God, but none to us, our sins have been canceled. We now have new family privileges. In Hebrews 2, 10 and 11, which we already read, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. As sons, we can call God Abba Father. We read that in Galatians 4. Jesus has destroyed the enemy powers that made us object of shame in the sight of God. Jesus is holy, he makes us holy, and he brings us into his family, calling us his brothers. Jesus usually addressed God as Abba, which is like Papa or Daddy. Now, as God's children, we share in this. Christ is giving us access to the presence of his Father. Jesus says we may now speak to him as he speaks with his Father, with the same right of access, the same sense of intimacy, the same assurance that he loves you. God listens to our prayers just as he does to those of his Son. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Sinclair Ferguson says that in Jesus, 
we see the compassion of God most fully. We saw in our second section today, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, how Jesus enters into our human frailty, weakness, our temptation to fears. He sympathizes with us because he became one of us and experienced everything that we do. As a tempted brother, he feels for us. But as a sinless brother, he can save us. Our adoption is not a change in nature, but a change in status. This is a declaration that God makes about us, and it is irreversible. Dependent only upon his grace and his choice, our relationship to God depends entirely on what Jesus has already done. Now, as members of God's family, he does want to see us acting like members of his family. God uses our own personalities to begin to change us more and more into the image of his son. We don't continue to sin, well, at least as badly maybe as we did before. We're not perfect, but we are being changed. We've been plucked out of the world, the family of the evil one, the enemy, and placed into the family of God. We've been brought out of one kingdom into another. Now hear this very carefully. Doing right is not the way into the kingdom, but it is the way of life in the kingdom. I want to say that again. Doing right is not the way into the kingdom, but it is the way of life in the kingdom. If we belong to Jesus, we have a changed relationship to sin in relation to our new brothers and sisters in the church, in our relationship to Christ, in our relationship to the world. We have a new father, a new family. We walk in delight. It's awesome. In my new family, I have a sense of security. I am God's child. He knows me and cares for me. In one of the most astounding verses in the entire Bible, Jesus is praying to God his Father in John 17, 23. And he says to his Father that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that God his Father will love us just as he has loved Jesus. That's amazing. I don't have to be somebody. In my new family, I have purpose and direction to bring glory to God, my Father. I don't have to be shaped by the world. I don't care if no one likes my Facebook post. And as one of our students said, I am a child of the King, and that makes me a princess. Father God, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who brings us into your kingdom and just gives us so much assurance and confidence and love. And Father, we just could never have even imagined such an incredible plan that you have put together. Thank you that you chose us before the foundation of the world. May you go before us now in our groups. May you just... Um, put the right people in front of us to talk to and to answer questions. And we just pray, Lord, that through everything, you will be the one who will get all the honor and glory for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.